All right, everyone, welcome to episode 159 of the Jesus Famous Podcast. As I say each time we get together, our podcast exists to see Jesus honored, glorified, loved, esteemed, appreciated, adored, revered, and followed. That's what Jesus Famous means to us, and we want to see that happen in your everyday life. Uh, I'm Nate Holdridge. I'll be hosting today's episode. I pastor Calvary Monterey on the California Central Coast, and I like to preach about Jesus Famous on Sundays and write about Jesus Famous during the week at nateholdridge.com. Um, one of the things we do on the show is we have uh, interviews from time to time with various people that I admire, look up to, and have been encouraged from over the years. And uh, we actually have one of those episodes today. Uh, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I think we have uh, author and pastor Nick Cady with us, and he's going to discuss with us his recent book, The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing uh, Christianity. I, I, I served with Nick on the Calvary Global Network executive team, and uh, he recently came out with this book after uh, preaching a series like this to his church. And I poured through the book rather quickly and was greatly encouraged by it and was hopeful that he'd be willing to come on and a chat with us. And, and uh, he is, so I'll introduce him in uh, a moment. But just a couple of announcements for you guys, just to remind you that we're posting right now every couple of weeks, so you can go back and check out previous uh, episodes. We've got some great conversations in the queue uh, in the coming weeks and months. And also thanks for rating and reviewing and spreading the word when there's an episode that really resonates uh, with your heart. Uh, but Nick uh, grew up in Colorado, spent 10 years as a missionary in Eastern Europe. He's a pastor and church planter and uh, is a great man who I, I think he must be a really organized person because he's kind of prolific when it comes to the amount of content that he comes out with, including uh, this book. So Nick... Welcome to the Jesus Famous Podcast, man. So what's the weather like out there in uh, in Colorado? I mean, is this like the golden time of the year out there, or is it kind of fading away? What's up? You know, I, I think we have good weather most of the year here in Colorado. I think it's one of the uh, things. Actually, it's funny. My wife always tells me not to talk about it too much because she's afraid that more people will move here. Um, but actually, today's really cold. Uh, it's, you know, mid-September, but it is a uh, high of like 50 degrees today. Um, but I'm a runner and I um, love 50 degree days. In fact, for me, I think running at 50 degrees is about as good as it gets. So I was happy that, um, you know, we have a lot of sunshine here in Colorado. We're kind of like a high desert, but, uh, for me today, cloudy and 50 degrees was perfect. Nice. I remember the recent, uh, network conference that we had down in Southern California. Uh, our team had a little Airbnb in Huntington beach and I would, I'd be walking, kind of running sometimes down on the rec trail there. And I think a couple of mornings I saw you with like this huge posse of guys just like galloping down the, uh, down the uh, rec trail there. So it was fun to see you in action. Us Colorado guys, man, when we see the ocean, uh, you know, we got to go run on the, on the beach. Plus we get oxygen down, down when we go to the coast. So it's really, really exciting. That's right. You've been doing that elevation training. Time, time to set some PRs when you hit the coast. That's right. So, Nick, I, I 
thanks a lot for writing this book. I, it, it is a really good read. Obviously, um, I, I love the things I enjoyed about it. I mean, it was articulate, first of all, but um, honest, um, super pastoral. You know, I think the conclusion of each chapter, it, w- it was clear that you weren't only an academic approaching each one of these chapters, but it was academic as well. You know, it was well-researched. I looked at the end notes, 107 end notes you had in there. So a lot of cataloging and uh, researching and borrowing the best ideas and arguments that are out there. Um, How did this book come about? Yeah, so it came about through a, a series of things. So on the one hand, I had been wanting to write a book, and I do appreciate you noticing the footnotes because for me that was a really big part because I wanted I wanted people to be able to say, okay, where where is he making these claims from? Where to get the ideas? And also having you know in my schooling that was like a big deal. If you didn't uh, footnote everything, basically can't make any claims unless you prove them. And so uh, that was something I learned through school and I really was glad to apply in it. So I'm glad that you appreciated it and noticed it. Um, it, The idea for the book came about though, I'd say the first impetus for it was that uh, we had some young people in our church who uh, had grown up in the church, who had been in the church longer than even I had. I, I came into a church and took it over a few years ago. And these young people then were going off to college, maybe older in high school, and they were deconstructing. Before that was like a big buzzword that everybody was talking about. That's what they were doing. And just in conversations with these people, I began to realize that they were asking a lot of questions for which there are good answers. And if they were willing to dialogue about it, I would be willing to help them and kind of take their hand, walk them through it. And here's the thing about this, right? This We might call this apologetics, right? Giving an answer for the hope that we have and giving a defense of the faith. But I think that sometimes in the apologetic space, people can take on a defensive posture. Sometimes if you think about the the art that's associated with the apologetic space, sometimes it can be, I would say, kind of defensive or even, mm. yeah, aggressive, right? Like knights with armor on. And I understand some of that imagery comes from the Bible, but um, you, you know that putting on the whole armor of God isn't to fight your neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> that's uh, for a different reason, right? So yeah. um I I realized that a lot of these people who were asking these questions, they were people who I wanted to uh, not take a defensive posture with. I wanted to take a really a posture of like, let's dialogue. Let's, if you really want answers to these questions and you're willing to converse, then let's do it. And so I would say that that's a big part of how the book turned out. And I'm really glad about that, that it doesn't come across as a antagonistic us against them type of thing, but more of like a dialogue. I love that, man. We're, we're right now wrapping up a study of the book of Jonah together as a church. And I've been trying to tackle it from the angle that there's God's nature. There's who he is. And Jonah was unhitched from that. He was orthodox in his belief, but he was unorthodox in his behavior. And we're concluding this week, you know, with thinking about God's compassion, his pity for the Ninevites, you know, and I think what you're trying to demonstrate is a heart for people who are wrestling with some really big ideas. Now, just backing it up a sec, uh, a second, I mean, I know you could probably talk about this for a really long time, but you mentioned deconstructing. Uh, maybe for someone who's unfamiliar with what that term means, give us a, a, a primer on that. 
Yeah, so deconstructing, uh, I would say that the way that the word is used now isn't the way that it has always been used in scholarly circles, but I think the way it's being used right now is what really matters for us. And that, essentially, you could think about it like a house, right? If you were to deconstruct a house, you'd be uh, taking off the drywall, looking at what's behind it, uh, getting the house down to the studs so you can really see the foundation of it and the, mm. the, the way it's constructed and stood up. And, and so what's been happening is that there's been a, a lot of popularity, especially fueled by social media, of young people questioning the faith which they inherited from their parents or maybe some cultural things that were influenced by Christianity. And personally, I think that is a good thing to do. I think that you can see examples of that, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is speaking to the new generation that didn't see all the things that their parents saw when they came out of Egypt. Hmm. And he's speaking to them and saying, the Lord needs to be your God. And, and you need to you know, figure out today what you will do. So I think there is a healthy way to do that. I think there's a healthy way to examine, you know, what parts of what you believe or what you have inherited as belief are cultural as opposed to biblical. Um, and yet, I'd say in the way that deconstruction is commonly referred to and used, it's really just people kind of casting off um, as opposed to really honestly examining. I would say I that see. that's more of the popular uh, way it's being done. And so I actually think that having a crisis of faith is is a normal part of, of having faith. Uh, you know, going through seasons of doubt is okay. I think about Matthew chapter 28, where it says right before Jesus gave his great commission, it says that the disciples were on a mountain in Galilee and they saw Jesus after he resurrected. And it says that they worshiped him but some doubted. Mm -hmm. And what that tells me is it's possible to doubt and worship at the same time. Mm -hmm. And and that doubt isn't the enemy of faith, but perhaps it's it's the gateway into deeper faith. And so I would just encourage anyone who's thinking through that to say, hey, I'm we're not against doubt and deconstruction. What we are against is um, somebody who's under the guise of that, not actually willing to have a conversation and and uh, see if there are indeed evidences for belief. Yeah, precisely. That quick dismissal, we're not in favor of that, but having a conversation, thinking deeply about the faith, so important. So in your book, Nick, I, I loved it because it was organized so well, and basically each chapter uh, began, for those listening, with uh, uh, an objection. Uh, I won't believe in a God who, and then there were nine objections. So I won't be, believe in a God who hasn't proved his existence, or I won't believe in a God who gave us a faulty Bible, or condoned genocide, or creates hateful, hypocritical followers, or suppresses women and minorities, or sends people to hell, or says some love is wrong, or lets bad things happen to good people, or doesn't answer my prayers and you know for those of you listening to this obviously i love the book i enjoyed the book and i'd encourage you to uh, go on amazon or wherever you buy books and grab a copy for yourself but i'm curious nick as the as the author as the writer was there a, a favorite chapter of yours or a favorite chapter or two that you really enjoyed pressing into for your own benefit yeah i i would say uh number one the chapter on genocide 
that was one that was really uh, came about because of my own curiosity and almost a little bit of concern over how can this be? How can it be that a good God could do something which in our day and age might be called genocide? I would say that was one that was real close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some chapters which were really satisfying to write because in a way they were they were easy and they wrapped up nicely. I would say that genocide one is one that I don't think is easy to just put a tight, nice, you know, easy wrapping over or bow on. Um, But some of them are like the Bible one is really interesting. I think there's a lot of great evidence out there that many people don't know. I think the one on hypocrisy was also very satisfying to write. In fact, the one on women and minorities was extremely satisfying to write. Um, Mm. So, so yeah, those, and just getting back to your prior question, and I think it lends itself to this question which is how did it come about? So the initial conversations led me to this kind of curiosity as to whether we as a church are actually answering the questions that people are really struggling with in our pews. And so what we did is we took a poll and we put that poll, it was an anonymous questionnaire that we put online and we asked everyone at our church to not only fill it out, but share it with everyone they knew. And then I, we also have a call-in radio show that I do on Fridays. And so we put that out to that radio program and did the same thing. So as a result, we got several hundred responses. There were two questions on the questionnaire. One was, complete this sentence. I could never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. And then we had you know, some options to kind of spur thinking. And the second question was, do you consider yourself a Christian? And so what we came up with out of that, of those several hundred responses, that's how we ended up with these nine topics, which you just listed. Uh, They were essentially different versions of these questions. And so we kind of grouped them together, uh, narrowed them down to nine questions. And then what I found so interesting is that many of the people who had these objections or who had objections or issues that they communicated, they, many of them were Christians. I'd say it's about 50-50 people who said they're not Christians, people who said they are. But the point is that there are people in our pews or in our chairs who are going to church and they're still struggling. They've got real questions, which if they're not answered, they could, you know, be seeds for uh, future problems down the road. If you just kind of keep suppressing them and pretending those questions don't exist or not getting answers, those things aren't just going to go away. And so that was part of our goal was, number one, to serve the people in our church by answering these questions. Uh, Number two was to equip them to talk to their neighbors. And number three was to provide a resource that they could use in the future, either to give to somebody or to, um, you know, be a reference material that they could use when they have conversations. So I'm taking it then that you didn't just sit down to say, okay, now these questions, I want to write uh, a book about them. Uh, it sounds like you preached a, a series perhaps. And h- how did that go? What what was it like live in the room, you know, taking these nine weeks to go through this material? And then what was it like following the recording? You know, were, were, were these like uh, selling like hotcakes, so to speak? I mean, I'm sure you just gave them away. But were, were people really wanting to, to share this uh, material? Yeah, absolutely. So we we started kind of promoting this that we were going to do it and it ended up being kind of a 9-week outreach for our church where we would we gave people the dates and the topics that we were going to cover on each date and we encouraged them invite friends, invite neighbors, invite people who you think need to be there for these talks. 
so we had a lot of guests in our church those weeks. And, and you know, how did it go live? Man, I'll tell you, there were a couple weeks where I definitely saw people like actively disagreeing with what I was saying, like people like shaking their heads and looking angry, um, but they were listening, they were engaging. And I think that that matters a lot to me um, in the wake of it. You know, of course, we recorded it. People asked that we would, you know, put them in a, in a way that we could hand them out to people easily. So what we initially did is we put all the recordings on uh, USB drives and then we made them available to people. And we've given away hundreds of these over the last several years. We, we even do, we sponsor a few running races here in Colorado and um, we would hand them out, you know, as kind of like free giveaways. And mm -hmm. it became a big part of our outreach of our church. Well, during the COVID pandemic, uh, I think it's, yeah, early 2021, I had a gentleman in our church, his wife died of COVID, and he came up to me after service one day and he said, do you have any materials that would help me process like why God would let something bad happen, you know, to my wife or to me? We love the Lord. We've been walking with the Lord. And I said, well, yeah, I, I preached a message that might be helpful on that topic. It was part of the series. I gave him the pen drive. He listened to it. He asked, you know, could I get like a, a written uh, transcript of this, which I did have as well. So I hand, I emailed him that. And then he was like, actually, could I just get transcripts of all these? And I was like, sure. And he goes, why, you know, why don't you just turn this into a book? Because a lot of people would probably want this too. And I was like, you know what? That's it. That, I, I took that as kind of like the word of the Lord to me because I had been uh, planning to write more like academic theology. I had just done a, finished my master's in integrated theology and planned to write for journals and things like this, uh, not really wanting to write, honestly, in what we might call the popular uh, Christian space. Um, but a friend of mine who's also a Christian writer, I kind of talked to him about it. He just said, he goes, hey, man, write for the people who are reading your stuff. Like mm. if you have an audience, write for them. Don't write for some people who, who aren't actually interested in reading what you have to say. Uh, and so, you know, through that, I was like, okay, yeah, that's it. So the Lord was in this and uh, it's gone really well. You know, we've sold several thousand copies so far and I've just been blown away with, you know, uh, how, how the response has been. That's awesome, Nick. It's, uh, it's definitely worth that. So I'll be praying that it continues to, continues to move. So it sounds like you just took a, the open door that was in front of you. I'm, I'm curious, I, I want to ask you some questions about the book, but I'm curious if in the church there, did you notice people after this series was over with maybe interacting with um, deeper materials, you know, like saying, okay, I want to, how can I, that, that chapter where you talked about hell, how can I get into that even more? You know, do you find that people are kind of stirred up and hungry in this area a little bit? Yeah, for sure. You know, people looking for um, that was part of the footnoting thing was to say, hey, if you want to read more on this, I, I gave it two sentences. But mm -hmm. if you want to read some really good scholarly stuff on this, check this out. And so absolutely. Yeah, we've seen definitely a hunger for that. And we've seen some kind of grassroots groups grow up around it. We've seen, uh, I have a, a lady who owns a business in our church and she started doing a Bible study with her employees based on it. Uh, we're currently creating a youth group curriculum and we had a group that came out of this that um, just was like a collective, if you will, of people brainstorming how to reach out to their neighbors and to 
uh, have these kinds of conversations. So yeah, we've just seen good fruit come out of it. That's got to be so encouraging for you. So um, I, I was recently kind of in one of those uh, types of conversations that you alluded to earlier, you know, just someone younger in the church who loves the Lord, but is asking questions and has maybe felt like that's not allowed in the church and in, uh, in the past. And so they're kind of a little sheepish, uh, with me. And one of the things that I've found that people will say, uh, when they're kind of going through that honest, um, inspection of the faith is they'll, they'll kind of say these things like, well, aren't I just supposed to have faith? Like, aren't I just supposed to like believe all this? No questions asked. And isn't it somehow a sign of my lack of faith or a weakness in my faith if I am asking these questions? So obviously the premise of your book is that there are reasonable explanations out there. Um, But does the Bible encourage us in that direction? And how does us doing research and thinking intermix with the importance of trusting God and, and having faith in your mind? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Here's one of my uh, recent favorites. I'd say there are several verses that come to mind, but this is one of my recent favorite verses in this space, and that's Second um, Peter chapter 1. And Peter says this, he's talking about the hope that we have in heaven because of the divine power, you know, God, what God has done for us. He says in Second Peter 1, 5, he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, or some translations say, add to your faith, virtue, and with virtue, knowledge. And then he goes on, lists a few other things. I think that's, that's interesting that we're told to add to our faith, knowledge. And, um, I think that that's pretty encouraging, right? That God would say, Hey, don't just, I'm not just saying you should have blind faith. I'm saying, you know, that you should, you should research these things. You should have knowledge, make sure that what you're believing is true. I mean, if what we believe really matters, and apparently, especially according to the Gospel of John, what Jesus says there, what we believe absolutely matters. It's a matter of life and death when it comes to Jesus. Then we should want to make sure that it's true, and um, and we should look for evidence. I think another good example is Doubting Thomas, which is such a bummer of a nickname, right? Like he had a bad week, and now he's stuck for the rest of eternity. <laughs> Poor guy. I know. So... Uh, But, you know, Thomas says, I won't believe unless I get evidence. And Jesus, in his mercy, gives him evidence to believe, but also challenges him. Hey, you know, are you only going to believe if this is the, if you can only have the kind of evidence that you want? Mm -hmm. Because what if that evidence isn't available? And I wouldn't say that he's saying that you should believe without evidence, but I think he's saying that, you know, maybe the kind of evidence you desire isn't always going to be available. There are still other evidences. We have the testimony. We have plenty of things to look at. So personally, I don't really see any conflict between um, faith and knowledge, faith in these. I think they're complementary. Beautiful. Yeah, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Applying our minds to this is, is important. So well said. Thank you. And I mean, praise God for those who have come before us who have used their minds well to help explain the faith to us as part of what, uh, part of the means and with which it's come to us in the first place. So Nick, I was kind of thinking that, you know, um, I mean, I would love to talk to you for hours and kind of get an overview of the whole 
book. But I thought what we could do for the rest of our time together is um, give a little sampling by just talking about the very first chapter um, where you dealt with the objection, I can't believe in a God who hasn't proved his existence. And I thought I'd just ask you some questions about that chapter, um, frankly, with the hope that those of you who are listening to this would both be encouraged in God's existence, uh, but perhaps also encouraged to um, read the rest of the book and dig into the rest of uh, the, the chapter. So w- when you were cataloging, you know, people's different objections and, you know, taking in those few hundred anonymous uh, comments, I'm sure not every single person said, I can't believe in a God who hasn't proved his existence. I'm sure there were some pretty creative variations of that same theme. I mean, I mean, I know I've heard people say things to me like, I don't believe in the tooth fairy, so why would I believe in God? I don't believe in the Easter bunny, so why would I believe in God? What were some of the variations of this objection that you came across? Sure, yeah, people would say, if God would just reveal Him to himself to me, like if he would show up, if he would speak to me, then I'd believe. Or, you know, very simply, if God was real, we would have undeniable scientific proof that he exists. Like, in other words, if God is real, then he would be able to give that to us, and why would he withhold it from us? Um, Yeah, variations like these. Yeah, I love it. So this kind of has the idea that uh, there's this quantifiable figure out there that should have uh, done more to reveal himself to us, but I don't want to spoil the whole chapter, but at the end, you really get into what God did do to reveal himself, which I so love. But let me start by asking the question, are science and uh, Christianity uh, compatible? Because I think that's kind of a big idea in people's minds, right? That I'm either going to be a scientific person or I'm going to be a person of faith, but I can't be both. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't mention this in the book, but this is something that I researched a while back, which was that if you look at the sciences, right, you've got your social sciences and you've got what are sometimes called hard sciences or or the like, you know, natural sciences. If you look at those two areas, uh, there was a study done by the University of Michigan in which they kind of looked at the effects of different majors on people's religious beliefs. It was really interesting. What they found is that those who studied Uh, religious beliefs themselves tended to grow in them. So for example, people who go to seminary, people who go to Bible college, they tend to grow in confidence in their beliefs about God. Now, those who studied the, um, the physical sciences, they also tended to increase in belief about God. Now, that's contrary to what some people might assume, but here's what was really interesting is that those who studied social sciences, so this would be like anthropology, sociology, psychology, etc., they tended to have a a really, really big drop-off in faith in belief in God. And what that tells me is, look, if you study the natural world, you'll be, if you study the natural world or you study God, you will tend to believe in God more. Um, Mm. But if you study human beings, uh, you will tend to question whether God exists. And I think that that actually itself would be in line with what we read in the scriptures about the nature of human beings. So, um, yeah, what we would say, what I would say to that is that, no, of course, you don't have to choose between science and Christianity. In fact, I would agree with Alvin Plantinga, who's a professor and a philosopher. 
he says that modern science is not at odds with the Christian faith. In fact, modern science was conceived, born, and flourished in the matrix of Christian theism. In other words, Christianity creates the foundation for why people think scientifically in the first place, or at least uh, the Bible, if not Christianity in particular. Um, right, so scientific discovery is not opposed to religious discovery. The Bible talks to us a lot about general revelation. In other words, that the way we know things about God is by observing the created world, which he made. Hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, we live in an area here in Colorado, um, which I assume is, is somewhat like where you live, Nate, where we have a lot of engineers, a lot of scientists. Um, just down the road here is the aerospace company that worked with the University of Colorado to send the Mars rover. And we have several people in our church who worked on that. And the other day I was telling a story about uh, an a story I'd read and I used as an illustration in my sermon about a NASA project. I had three people after church walk up to me and say, yeah, we know about that project. We worked on it. And <laughs> so it's really funny though, because um, I have a, one of our board members, actually the president of our board here at the church, he is a rocket scientist. So that's fuel for a lot of jokes. He's not a big jokester, but I like to make the jokes, <laughs> uh, you know? So uh, the point is that, you know, you just look around there. We have uh, scientifically minded people and they actually would say that their scientific studies have fueled their belief in God, not undermined them. What is it you think that about Christianity that would, um, that nudges someone towards, uh, the sciences and, you know, the, the study of, of the universe in the way the sciences study it. Is there something intrinsic to the Christian faith that promotes that? Well, I, I would say those verses that I alluded to, which would be like Psalm 19, you know, talking about how the heavens declare the glory of God, uh, Romans chapter one, how what can be known about God can be clear to all. It's discerned by observing the natural world. So yeah, I think that the Bible is very positive about studying the world and studying how things work and having that influence or, um, I guess, um, inform our, our understanding of God. Yeah. And if you come at your view of the world with a, a belief that there is a God who created, then you would expect to find order within that creation and things that he wants us to discover so that we could fill the earth and subdue it as he told us to, you know, I mean, he didn't give Adam and Eve all the math equations at the very beginning, but that was the idea. They're there. They're in the cosmos. You go out there and get them. So in your uh, book and this chapter, um, after you talked a little bit about the compatibility of science and the Bible, science and Christianity, um, and I really appreciated kind of even just drawing our attention to a number of um, Christian uh, it's hard. You can't say Christian scientists anymore. Uh, <laughs> a number of scientists who are Christians, you know, kind of drawing our attention to that. You got into this um, uh, argument for the existence of God, and you based it on three pillars of understanding. What can you give us an overview of what that argument looks like? So I broke it into three areas. I call it the limitations of science. Uh, the fingerprints of God and the word became flesh. And what I mean by that is that um, 
first of all, science itself is limited and it acknowledges. I mean, if you study it, you'll know that it acknowledges that. I mean, even when we talk about the physical sciences or even the social sciences, they're studying the physical world and the behavior of human beings in society. What they don't speak to is areas of metaphysics, right? So when we talk about God, when we talk about something that can't be measured um, scientifically using the scientific method, then we're getting into the area of metaphysics. Now, they can, we can theorize about metaphysics all we want, but that's not science, right? And so there, there's, if you have a belief in naturalism, that is a metaphysical belief. If you believe that, if you believe something that cannot be tested or proven, that's a metaphysical belief. So my point, and which I would want everybody to understand, is that everyone has beliefs, right? Whether you believe that there's a God or you believe there's not a God. If you say there's not a God, that's a metaphysical belief. Mm -hmm. If you say we can't know if there's a God, also a metaphysical belief, right? So let's just be, let's kind of level the playing field. It's not science versus faith. It's everybody's making metaphysical claims. So let's consider them all on the even playing field and consider which ones give us the best, most reasonable answers. And my conclusion is that I actually think that belief in God is the most reasonable explanation for for many of the things out there. So when we get into the fingerprints of God, I break that also into three parts. I look at some evidence from cosmology, evidence from morality, which is interesting. That that gets more into the sociology part, and then evidence from revelation. So when I talk about cosmology, I mean, th this is one of the most compelling things is that you, know, you look at stuff like uh, Francis Collins. I think he's fantastic. You know, he wrote this book, The Language of God. He headed up the group that did the Human Genome Project, in which they mapped out the human genome. He's a man who started out as an atheist, mm. even an atheist into adulthood, as a scientist, assuming this exact thing that we've been talking about, that you can't be a scientist and believe in God. And he came through his scientific study to believe that there is no better explanation for this than that there is uh, an intelligent creator and that beyond that that actually jesus is god so he says for example there are all these physical constants like gravity the speed of light the mass of an electron have such precise values that if any of them were off by even like one part in a million the universe could not have come to the point where it was where it is today so in other words so fine-tuned there's no other explanation wow. and and here's what i find so interesting i mentioned this in the book well, then how do people who don't believe in a God yeah. of any kind, how do they do that? And what's funny is that there actually is a way that they do that. Uh, it's, it's well known, like Richard Dawkins kind of heads this up, if you will. And he says that it's what's called the multiverse theory. I thought you were pulling my leg when I read this in the book. You know, it sounded like a Marvel reference. You know, this is, this is from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the multiverse. But this is a real thing. It's a real thing, and it's his best explanation. In fact, it is wow. the kind of best explanation out there. And so, you know, basically they say there are trillions of parallel universes, and we just happen to hit the jackpot. Um, and in, you know, each of these trillion parallel universes, they exist side by side, and in each of these, every possible scenario which could have ever possibly happened has happened. So my question would be, okay, hang on a second. Does it actually take faith to believe 
in a in trillions of parallel right. universes for which there is absolutely no scientific evidence. And and that's my point. This is not science versus faith. This is metaphysical claims which need to be compared to each other. Yeah. Love that. And kind of to go back to what you said at the outset of the of this conversation. Yeah, I mean, you hear some of these things and you kind of like I'm even kind of chuckling a little bit, you know, at the idea of uh, there's trillions of multiverses and you kind of want to snicker at it a little bit. But I don't want to fall for that trap either, because that's not the Lord's heart. I think what you're just trying to point out is, hey, these are claims that are being made. Which one sounds more reasonable which one are you able to put your faith and trust in and to believe in the trillions of multiverse multiverses theory takes a, a measure of faith so i really appreciate you pointing that out and then you so you said cosmology evidence from morality and revelation i'm curious about the morality one what do you mean by that yeah with morality so for example um there are things which we do morally, but also things like beauty, um, things like that, which don't necessarily aid us in the evolutionary process. And so if we were to say, well, where do these things come from? Where do we get this idea that, for example, I mean, Colorado, I look out my window at the mountains. It's like, okay, actually, those are just big piles of rocks. Why do I find them beautiful? Why do I find them compelling? Or, or for example, I use this, this example in the book that if you look at primates, uh, male primates, monkeys and gorillas regularly commit sexual assault against female primates. And those who study them would say it's actually, first of all, it's hardwired into them. It's a behavior that they do naturally. Mm -hmm. And it's actually advantageous for the species because it helps the propagation of stronger, more dominant genes rather than weaker passive ones. So it's like, well, if this is good for them, then when it comes to human beings, if somebody talks about harassment, intimidation, or rape, those are universally considered abhorrent and wrong. Why is that? And, and the point just being this, that science can speak to the way things are and how people act, but it can't tell us why. Mm. It, it can't tell us how things ought to be. So the fact that, that we have this sense of right and wrong points to something beyond ourselves would uh I, I was talking to a group of guys the other day and i just was kind of making the comment that for me our love for music is for me like a clue about god's existence because to me it kind of falls in that category of what is the big benefit of this uh from an evolutionary standpoint it just seems that god has hardwired us to appreciate that beauty is that the kind of thing that you're putting into this uh morality category or the beauty category yeah yeah absolutely um you know i think the morality one tends more to be an issue of right and wrong as mm -hmm. pointing to a god who designed us for a purpose i think when you get into the beauty perfection and love that speaks of a god who designed us um you know, those things don't necessarily serve a purpose unless our purpose is more than just existence. If our purpose is actually something like enjoyment, which I would say most people would say that they do believe our life is more than just survival. So, right. Okay. 
great. Thanks for that. And then uh, your last one, you talked about uh, concerning the clues of God's existence. Uh, you talked about revelation. Um, so, you know, talk to me about that. You know, why doesn't God just uh, shout from the heavens, you know, here I am, believe the Bible, trust my son. Like if we just, you know, every morning at 7 a.m. in our whatever time zone we're in, if that was like the angelic announcement from heaven, why isn't that God's approach? Has God revealed himself in any kind of clear, tangible, spoken way? Yeah, so I look at the Bible for that. I would say, okay, when we talk about the fingerprints of God, that's more talking about what we call general revelation, meaning what we can learn about God by observing nature in the created world. When I get into talking about the Bible, that's really referring to what we call like special revelation, which would be the Bible and things like you're talking about, like um, you know, speaking into the world or audibly or things like that. I think the Bible itself bears the marks of something that is, um, you know, it's not just a normal book. Like there's something special about it and the, the way it was created and the ultimate outcome of it. If you get into the origins of the Bible, but I think beyond that, I mean, just from a really logical point of view, right. To just say rationally, if God was going to communicate with us, what would be the most effective way for him to do that? And I think the answer would be a written record that could be mm. tested over time to see if it's changed and it would have a way for us to verify you know whether it was really true kind of like when we do anything in our society we want written records so that we can go and we can verify and we can hold accountable for claims that are made and things that are promised so i think that part but then of course you know to the person who says yeah, i would believe in god if he would just come here and and speak to me, right? And walk these streets. And the Bible's answer to that is, well, he did, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of the point right. of the New Testament and and the story of Jesus. And you would think, right, hey, if God were going to be a human being, what kind of person would he be? Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that he would be a holy person. He would be someone who, when he speaks, it would be insightful. It would be um, impactful, perhaps the most impactful words ever spoken, uh, that he would perhaps perform miracles as a, you know, proof that he was God. Um, you know, he would demonstrate his love. He would authenticate who he is. And of course, if we look at those things, if we were to create a list, we would have to look at that list and say, well, that sure does look a lot like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so for the person who says, well, if God would just come here and speak to us, I think the answer the Bible would give is, he has. Now, on the other hand, there's still a requirement for faith, right? Like, mm. I think if, if God did all that and just made it so easy that you couldn't possibly, uh, you know, deny it or have any choice in the matter, uh, I think that it would be taking away a very important thing, which we see throughout the Bible, which is that God doesn't just want us to believe that he exists. He wants us to actually put our personal trust and faith in him. Yeah, amen. I love the way you said it in the book. Nick, just to quote you back to you, but for the sake of our listeners, you said, if God ever did come to earth, you'd expect that it would change history, that nobody would ever forget it. People would talk about it, write books about it, maybe even sing about it for years to come. They would probably take those words he spoke and write them down, read them aloud, 
and try to apply them to their lives and live them out. So well said, and I believe so true. So thank you, man. So Nick, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to to be with us today. Um, before I give you a chance to just share a closing exhortation um, with uh, those that are listening today, uh, I do want to ask you, uh, just from your perspective, I mean, I know that you wrote this book and not every pastor is called to dabble in the written word, although I think probably more are than do enter into that practice. But from a preaching standpoint and uh, what you experienced in your congregation, I'm wondering if there's an exhortation in there from you to those of us who are responsible for pulpits in various towns and communities, uh, would you encourage us towards trying something like this, whether it's on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a class or a small group? Is this something that you would um, advise us to engage in? Yeah, 100%. And in fact, that was another part of the story of how I'd end up doing this series is that I heard a podcast in which someone was advocating for this and saying, you know, an apologetic series is really a gift to your church. It's a gift to your community. Um, make sure you're answering the questions people are asking and find out what they are, like ask them. And so we took that advice along with all the other things that led to this series. And I would highly advise people to do it. You know, many of us are in the habit of teaching through books of the Bible, and I think that's a really good thing. But sometimes there is a place for saying we're going to take a, some dedicated time to respond to some of these topics, because remember that the goal of our ministry as preachers and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm -hmm. And they are surrounded every day by people in their workplaces, by people in their families who are presenting them with these questions. And a lot of times what I've heard back from people is, well, I just tell people, I don't know the answer to that. I guess you just got to have faith. Um, and I think that will only take you so far, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that where there are really good answers, man, what a, what a gift and what a help to be able to give those answers to people. And so I would just encourage the pastors and uh, teachers out there, like, let's help our people have that information. Yeah, I really like how you're connecting it to that the Ephesians 4 paradigm of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Because you're right, all, although it's helpful to the people in our church and it, you know, for any Christian to know the theme and general outline and major truths of all the books of the Bible, um, generally out there, they're not being asked the question, hey, what's the main theme of the Gospel of John? <laughs> you know, they're being asked uh, related to the kind of questions that you brought up. For those pastors out there who are in a church that is committed to the expositional preaching of the word, like many Calvary Chapel churches are, um, did you get any any kind of pushback or resistance from the folks in your congregation, because that I know that's your normal manner is to choose a book of the Bible, go verse by verse through it. Um, did you get any resistance at all? I mean, nine weeks is, is not an inconsequential amount of time. It took you a couple of months to get through this. 
we didn't. And the reason is because, um, you know, people are used to us doing long studies through books of the Bible. And even I remember telling people throughout the series, I, I would just kind of tell them, explain to them why I was doing it. I'd say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to get back to our regular rhythm of studying through books of the Bible. But for this period of time, we're doing this study. Um, and I hope that it will be helpful to you. And we do that about once or twice a year. We will, you know, generally go through long book studies. Currently, we're studying through 2 Corinthians. But prior to this, we did a series in which we looked at um, seven things that Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of John to the effect of why you should believe in him. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we just try to make sure that our series are, you know, serving people and trying to help them uh, by equipping them. And I think that if you do that, you're not going to get a lot of pushback. Yeah, that's great. Good leadership. You communicated clearly. And my encouragement to you, man, is those series that you're doing once every year or every couple of years, I, I would encourage you to really be praying about whether those should turn into a book each time you go through one, because what a great resource to be able to give to people. Well, Nick, I want to close by thanking you and also encouraging people that are listening to this to click on the link in the show notes, which will take them directly to Amazon where they can see the product page for this book and uh, consider uh, picking up a copy for themselves, uh, whether in printed form or for their Kindle reader or whatever e-device they use. I really think you guys will be blessed and, and benefit greatly from this read, great resource to have too. You know, you go through it once, but then to be able to go back to these arguments and like Nick said earlier, to look at the footnotes and find other resources and materials that can deepen your understanding in some of these subjects would be really beneficial for you. So I hope and pray that you'd consider doing that church. Nick, do you have a closing exhortation for all of us? Yeah, it would just be that, you know, I would be, you know, view the people that you live around, understand that many of them are struggling with questions about God. Um, they're not our enemies. Uh, in fact, we can just approach them and start having some of those conversations. And I think you'd find that many of them are way more open to talking about it than you might have expected. Mm. Love that. Thank you, brother. And Everyone, uh, we'll put this in the show notes for you, but you can uh, keep up with Nick, learn more about his uh, life and ministry and teaching at nickkady.org. Uh, at Twitter, he's at nickkady, and on Instagram, he's at katynick. Uh, or you could just go to the Whitefields Church podcast if you're looking for uh, another uh, church to follow and check out some Bible teaching from. So. Thank you so much, Nick, for spending time with us. Really appreciate you. And we'll be praying that God continues to use the book for years to come.